announcements. Um, on your uh, seats, every other seat or so, there's a, a pledge card for Cobb Pregnancy Services. That's a crisis pregnancy center here in Cobb County. I said last week, to me, it's one of the two or three most important ministries we have in our county. They have their walk for life uh, on Saturday. Everything they do, they do for free. And so the services that they provide are all funded by donations. I'd encourage you to grab one of those pledge cards and fill it out and drop it in the bucket when it goes by, and we will get it to Cobb Pregnancy this week. Uh, after this service, we will have a, a picnic. So um, when we're done, grab some food, go to the square, find some space, and look for people that you see around you. That's us. So uh, that ought to be good. One other thing, welcome reception. Next Sunday from 7 to 9 up the street in 164, we'll have a welcome reception. It's a great way to get to know the staff. It's a great way to hear some more about how Stonebridge got started, kind of where we're heading, how you can plug in. If you have any questions at all, it's a great thing to come to. If no commitment, you come into that doesn't mean that you're part of this church. It just means you're trying to find out more. It's not restricted to people who are new. Anyone that wants to find out more, we encourage you to come to that. You can sign up in the back. If you have any questions, you can see Kim. Uh, we will have child care, so if you're bringing your kids, let us know the ages of your children to make sure that we've got the child care to cover that. All right. Oh, one other thing. On the Seder, if you have signed up for that, you need to pay. That's what I was told to tell you. I don't know who has paid and who has not paid. We don't, none of that money comes through us, so just pay. Who do you pay? Give the money to Kim, and she'll figure out where it goes. Or you can pay Richard Higgins. He'll be out back after the uh, thing, I'm sure. You can drop a check off with him. All right, so last week we looked at this whole idea, Romans 8.29, God desires for us, has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. If that's going to happen, we need to know exactly who Jesus is so then we can be conformed into his image. We said last week Jesus was compassionate. That was what motivated him to act. He was kind. That was how he acted, and he was powerful. That was the ability to act. And so we need to hold on to all of those, kindness, compassion, and power. We've mentioned over the past couple of weeks the fact that God actually does work. He responds to our prayers. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is not yet. Oftentimes the answer is yes. And Bucky Smith, where's Bucky? Uh, he leads a small group. Um, it's got a mix of folks from several different churches. He's been doing it for how long have you been leading this group? Twelve years. Will you grab that microphone right there? And uh, he has a testimony of God working this uh, this week. And so I've asked him to come and share. Let me turn it on for you. You talk. I'm going to slide right back Thank here. Thank you, David. You all like to hear good news? As believers, we, we all know that uh, all healing comes from God. Sometimes we heal through medicine, sometimes through surgery, sometimes through time, and sometimes it's miraculous. Because we are an impatient, healed people, that's what we like to see is miraculous healing. Because it affirms the, the God that we know. And then there's God's ultimate healing, which is uh, taking this church at home to be with him. That's God's ultimate healing. And he is glorified. Mary Payne, which some of you may know, is a member of our small group. And a number of years ago, she had a heart attack <coughs> and took a stent. Yeah, it's a pretty common procedure. And recently, she 
Let's do this, if this is not too, uh, this doesn't put you on the spot too much. Lift, I'll tell you the whole thing before you raise your hand. If you want, if, you're, if there's a physical need in your life, if you need physical healing, we want to take a minute and pray for you. You don't have to share what the situation is, but if you'd be willing to raise your hand, we'll have some people gather around you and just begin to pray that God would heal whatever that condition is. If there's, if there's anyone here who that's where you are this morning, if you'd slip your hand up. Got a guy in the back, back here. Okay, plenty. So y'all gather around them. And just, you can begin to pray. You don't have to know what the condition is. Just ask God to, if you can't get to somebody, don't worry. Just pray in your seat. There's nothing wrong with that either. There's nothing magic about touching somebody. Y'all go ahead and start to pray. God, we know that one of the ways you've revealed yourself to us is the God who heals. And there's a record throughout the Old and the New Testament of you touching people's bodies and them being instantly made well. And so that's our prayer for each of these men and women who've raised their hands, God, that you would touch their bodies and they would be made well, just as you did with Mary, God. And you 
cleared this blockage up. We pray, God, for all of these bodies, that they would function the way you created and designed them to function, God. If there's things that are foreign, God, that you would remove them. If there's things that need to be added, that you would do that, Lord, that you would touch these bodies. We know it's not because we're great, and it's not because we prayed the right prayers. It's because you're a gracious and loving and powerful God, and that you delight in healing your children. So we ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you all for praying and for being willing to share. All right, Mark 8. Last week, again, we looked at this whole deal about being conformed to the image of Jesus, and then we closed with this weird exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. They come and say, give us a sign. They're looking for a guarantee from heaven to prove that, you're, that what Jesus is saying is legit. They're saying, show us that we can trust what you're saying and what you're doing, and Jesus doesn't entertain them at all. He says, yeah, he sighs deeply. There's not going to be any sign given to you. He gets his disciples, and they get in a boat, and that's where we're picking up. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus said, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he said, who do people say I am? They, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you're the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So kind of the big idea in this section is understanding Jesus. That's all of this. These three separate incidences are really all about understanding Jesus and the way we can see that if you pull back this story of Jesus healing the blind man is is an is a demonstrated parable it really happened but it's a Jesus trying to demonstrate this truth that understanding is a process we receive revelation our job is to appropriate that or take that and make it our own and there's a process it, this is the only time in the New Testament where Jesus prays for a guy twice and it's not because he didn't eat his Wheaties that morning or He'd healed blind people before. There wasn't anything, for, there was no difference here. He'd raised people from, if we're going to categorize, he'd already raised people from the dead. This was not too hard for him. When he prayed for the guy and it didn't take, and he had to go back a second time, what he's trying to do is illustrate some are blind, they don't understand at all. Some are fuzzy, their understanding is partial, and some see clearly. And there's a process, there's a continuum 
And all of us are somewhere along that continuum. The religious leaders who he's warning the disciples about, they're over here in the completely blind category. The disciples at this point, Peter is really the example. He sees things and it's, it's fuzzy. He has partial understanding. He gets, yes, Jesus is the Christ. And he completely misses what that means. He goes from the front of the class to the back of the class in seconds when Jesus tries to explain this is who the Messiah is and, and Peter rebukes him. And then you've got the disciples, and we won't see this until the end of the book, after the resurrection. That's when they see clearly, particularly when you look at Pentecost in Acts 2. And again, there's this continuum, and we're all on it somewhere, and none of us see completely clearly. None of us have 100% clarity on who Jesus is. Even if we academically can answer the question correctly, none of us lives in the fullness of that revelation on a daily basis. We're like that guy after Jesus has touched him the first time. We can see, but things are still a little bit fuzzy for us. And so this morning what we're asking is for God to sharpen our focus, to clarify our understanding of who he is. Again, this whole idea of him, of God conforming us into the image of Jesus, if we don't know who Jesus is, it's going to be very difficult for us to cooperate with God in that process. Some people have this stereotype. It's accountant Jesus. No offense to accountants at all. He's got a green hat and a pencil and a ledger, and he's writing down everything that we do, right and wrong. And come the end of the week or the end of the month or the end of the quarter, you got to pay. You got to pay. If you're if you've done more good than bad, then maybe you'll get a prayer answered. If you've done more bad than good, then get ready to work it off. And that's our view of who Jesus is. And if that if that's what we think, and we think God is conforming us into the image of accountant Jesus then we're going to be awful people to be around. We're going to be legalistic. We're going to be self-righteous. We're going to be judgmental because God's making us into this accountant as well. And so I walk around with a book, and I keep track of everything. Love keeps no record of wrongs, but I do. And I've got this thing here. And at the end of the day or the week or the month, you've got to pay. If, if, in my view, you've done more wrong than right or however we want to define that. You see how it works. If our image of Jesus is distorted, and it is because we're all fallen, we're all finite, we can't get infinite into finite. So our image is distorted, and if I don't take the time or the intentionality to have that corrected, to ask the Lord to continually show me where am I missing it, what am I overemphasizing, what am I underemphasizing, what have I missed completely, if I'm not intentional in that process, then what I'm doing is I'm, uh, trying to con I'm conforming myself into something that doesn't exist, or I wind up working counter to God in my life. Throughout the Bible, you'll see people are often pictured as clay. We're clay, and God molds us and shapes us and makes us into pottery. And the Bible says he kind of does what he wants, and he different pots for different reasons. And when the, the picture for me is when the clay is soft, when it's malleable, he can use his hands, and he can mold us and shape us pretty easily. There's still shaping involved, and that can be somewhat uncomfortable for us. But he's using his hands. When we get hard, when we get brittle, when we get set in our ways, his hands don't work. He's got to use a hammer and a chisel. That's a whole different ballgame. He's still trying to accomplish the same thing. It's just he has to use different tools because our hearts have become harder. So he's got to use something stronger. That's Again, that's a whole different ballgame for us. We want to move in that direction. We want to remain soft in his hands, which is saying, I know, I can see, but it's fuzzy. 
So help clarify the picture for me. That's all of this stuff in this section we're looking at today. That's what Jesus is talking about, and that's what we need to get on board with. So the question is, who do you say that I am? That's, what Peter, that's the question that Jesus asked Peter. It's the most important question any of us will ever answer. More important than who you're going to marry, more important than what you're going to major in, more important than what you're going to do for a living, more important than where you want to live. It's, it's it. Everything hinges on your answer, my answer to who do you say that I am. There's a whole range of possibilities, and most of us have grabbed onto one of those in that range, not because we're intentionally trying to follow the wrong Jesus, but because of the, our experiences, our education, our family of origin, all these different Oprah-type things have kind of come together to shape us and cause us, it's just caused a distortion. And if we're not constantly laying that before God and saying, this is what I've got, show me where it's good and where it's bad, show me where it's right and where it's wrong, then we're going to wind up over time, our hearts get hardened toward in that distortion, and that's not good. So, back to 15, verse 15, be careful, Jesus said, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. So obviously the question is, well, what is the yeast that he's talking about? In the New Testament, yeast, if you have an older translation, it might say leaven, is almost always used as a metaphor for a corrupting or an evil influence. So what, Je- what Jesus is saying is, y'all watch out for that. The disciples, again, in all of their keenness of mind, totally miss the point of what Jesus is talking about. And that's why he kind of hammers them with these questions. Do you not understand do you have eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear? And the answer to all those things is, no, I don't understand. That's the right answer. And yes, I've got eyes, but I can't see. And I've got ears, but I can't hear. And I've got a heart that's hard. That's what he's trying to get across to them. You guys, you're not getting it. I'm not talking about bread that you eat. I'm talking about this yeast, which we'll see what that is here in a second. If you flip back to Mark 6, I think it'll be on the screen. This is the only other encounter we have with Herod up to this point. So Jesus has sent out 12 disciples, and they've done a lot of work. They've done a lot of ministry work. They've been very successful. And so the news about their success has started to circulate around the country. So that's what King Herod heard about this. That's what he heard about. He heard about these things that the disciples had done. For Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he's Elijah, and still others he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. Those were the same options Peter gave. That's what people are saying. That's who people are saying you are. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. If you look back at Mark 3, Mark 2 uh, has a lot of encounters between Jesus and the religious leaders, and they get progressively more hostile and more adversarial in terms of their interaction. And it kind of culminates here in Mark 3, starting in verse 20. Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, as they always do, so that he and his disciples weren't able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. I think when Jesus is referring to the yeast of Herod and the yeast of the Pharisees, he's not talking about open hostility towards him. Again, he's he's talking to his 12 guys. They're the only ones in the boat his 12 closest companions, closest followers. I don't think he's saying, you guys are at risk of becoming my enemies. I think what he's saying is this yeast of the Pharisees, this yeast of Herod, is the unwillingness to see Jesus for who he is. The Pharisees decided he was demon-possessed, and Herod decided he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. They're both wrong. They knew Jesus' character. They knew 
his message. They saw his actions. And they came to the wrong conclusion because he didn't fit whatever their preconceived notions of who he should be were. And so rather than allowing their preconceived notions to fall to the ground and then their perception to be conformed to the reality of who Jesus is, they just said, no, we're not, we're not buying that. Rather than being conformed into the image of Jesus, they conformed Jesus into the image that they had for him. And we all do that. There's a, that's, that's this stubbornness, if you like that word better, the hardness of heart or a stubbornness of heart. That's what he's warning his disciples against. Make sure, as you guys continue on, that you don't allow this stubbornness or this hardness of heart, which won't allow me to be who I am. Don't, don't let that stuff take root. And you see it, with, and, and it becomes apparent with Peter. All right, Peter, you got part of the equation right, and you've missed part of it. And so Peter has a choice. Is he going to hold on to what he believes is true about the Messiah, or is he going to let him go and let Jesus define himself? We know as we read the, we've read the rest of the story that, G, that Peter does let go of his expectations. And he does allow Jesus to, find, to define himself as a suffering Messiah, not as a triumphant Messiah, at least not at this point. But Peter in that moment could have held on and said no. You see that with Judas. As when we get to that point, when Judas betrayed Jesus, what most people think was going on is he was trying to force Jesus' hand. He heard Jesus talking about having to die on a cross, and so he's, he's pushing the issue. I'm going to cause you to get arrested to force you to stand up and be the Messiah that we all know you're supposed to be. He was not willing to let go of his expectations, and things didn't work out so well for him. And so that's kind of the choice for us. It's not that we're going to have the wrong understanding. We're all, we all have distortions. It's are we going to hold on to those distortions, or are we going to let them go? Jesus intentionally used this word, yeast. So this is what we have. This is... Enough flour to make one loaf of bread. I think it's four cups. And this is enough yeast to make one loaf of bread. It's like a teaspoon, I think is what it is. He's saying a little of this affects all of this. And that's, I think, for us is the picture. It only takes a little yeast, just a little stubbornness, just a little hardness of heart, and it will affect your entire heart, all of who you are. I think that's why Jesus made the warning. Again, Peter was right on the biggest question, who am I? You're the Christ. He got that part right. But this little bit of stubbornness in him that would have held on to say, you're a Messiah who can't suffer, that's why Jesus came back at him so hard. He says, get behind me, Satan. Not because Peter is Satan, but he offers the same temptation to Jesus that Satan did in the wilderness. Here, why don't you just bypass the cross and kneel down and worship me and I'll give you everything. That's what Peter's saying. You're a Messiah who's going to triumph. You don't have to suffer. And Jesus is rejecting what he's hearing from him. And again, thankfully, Peter hears that and is willing to, whoop, Peter is willing to uh, let go of his preconceived notions. So here at the end, who do you say that I am? Most important question for all of us. If we're going to cooperate with Jesus, we've got to cooperate with God. We need to know what he's trying to make us. Again, it's a whole idea. If you've seen the, if you've seen the top of the puzzle box, it's a whole lot easier to put the puzzle together. It's a lot easier for me to know what God's trying to do in my life if I have some concept of who Jesus is, like we talked about last week. All right, compassion, that's a deal. And so I've got to figure out, I'm not the most emotionally mature person in the world. And so for me, I, I've got to, that's, a, that's an area to grow. If I'm going to become more like Jesus, then I've got to grow in this whole area of 
compassion. I doubt I'm ever going to be a weeper, but I've got to get to where I'm moved by the things that move God's heart. It's good for me to know that. So anyway, you get that. Who do people say that I am? Here are your choices. John the Baptist, reincarnated, that's what Herod said. Elijah, this is from Malachi 4. I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. That's someone sent by God. So that's for people to say he's Elijah. They're not off by a lot. He did some of this stuff. John the Baptist was actually really seen as this second coming of Elijah, and that was the role that he filled. But people were getting, yeah, you're sent by God, and you have a job to do. Others said you're one of the prophets. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said, I'm gonna, God's going to send another prophet like me, like Moses. Listen to him. So the, the, the folks are getting close. They're not that far off. And then Jesus looks at Peter and says, well, what about you? And Peter gets the right answer. Again, there's a whole range of possibilities. The right answer is you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the one who was sent by God to rescue us and to usher in the age of the kingdom of God. Now, for us, again, there's a whole range of possibilities. There's as many distortions as there are people in the room. I can't go through all of them because I don't know them. I know mine. I don't know yours. Here's some that you might have. Jesse, will you show that first deal? So there's, um, let's see, there's blank, there's Republican Jesus. He's all for low taxes, limited government, the right to carry a gun wherever you want to carry it. I've got Democratic Jesus as well. Fill out both sides of the thing. He's a bit of a sissy, no offense. He thinks the role of government is to fix all of society's problems. He's big on redistribution. Who else do we have? Hippie Jesus. Love. Can't we all just get along? Peace. Who else? Sunday school Jesus. He's just sweet. Boyfriend Jesus. He's pretty cute. And he thinks we're cute. He just wants to hold our hands and tell us everything's going to be all right and cuddle. Bobblehead Jesus. He's a little bit of a good luck charm. We just keep him on the dashboard of our car. When we need him, he's there, but he's not too intrusive in our life. Who else do we have? CEO Jesus. Bottom line guy. Ends justify the means. He's just looking for the report at the end of the year. Doesn't have a lot to do with our regular life. All of those things are just, what's the last one? Oh, all of them are, they're plastic. They're fake. And that's what some, for some of us, that's when A.W. Tozier was a pastor in the 50s. He wrote some books, and he said this in one of his books. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. The most important thing about you, the most important thing about me, is what I think about when I think about God. And what many of us have done is we have this plastic picture of who Jesus is. And that's who we think God is trying to, he's trying to conform us into the image of one of those guys. Those were silly. There's a little bit of truth in those. But for each of us, we've got a distortion of who he really is. And it, it causes us to follow someone who's he's not real. He's, he's fake. And we think what God is trying to do is he's trying to push us into this direction. And he's not. And it causes us to not cooperate with God. And it causes us to disengage with what God is doing in our lives and what God wants to do through us. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to share a little bit more. So you all pray with me.
I'm going to read you a long chunk. This is from Isaiah 44. I just want you to hear this. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I'm the first and I'm the last. Apart from me there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Don't tremble. Don't be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and marks an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It's man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. You see the picture there. Y'all keep focusing. He's talking about how idols are made. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, I, I, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me. You are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat, and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes a deluded heart, misleads him. He can't save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I've made you, you are my servant. O Israel, I will not forget you. I've swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I've redeemed you. Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all your trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. God, my prayer for each of us, we don't make things out of trees. but We absolutely make things in our minds. And God, I pray you would show us the places where we've missed it. Not in a condemning or judging way. But to show us, hey, this isn't it. And then to show us, this is it. Here's reality. Here's who I am and who I want to be to you and who I want you to become. Kind of the picture in my mind, again, it's not a heavy thing. It's, it's your third date with this person. And you're intrigued. You love what you know and you want to know more. And you're excited about that. I think that's, that's the posture God wants us to take, this sense of expectancy. Recognizing right now what we see. We see people, but they look like, we see him and he looks like a tree. And we need him to clarify, this is who I am. We've picked up stuff all along the way. Some of it's intentional, most of it is not. And so, Lord, my prayer is that you would begin to show us now by your spirit, the spirit of truth. Show us where we've missed it. Show us the places in our own hearts, God, where we have a distorted view of who your son is. I want you all to listen for a second.
Lord, I pray now as we kind of wrestle with that. For some of us, that's a deep-seated deal. The roots of that go way down into our hearts and into our past, and we need your grace to remove that distortion. And God, we want more reality. We want to be. We want to let go of the things, our expectations, our perceptions that are wrong, so that we're free to grab onto the truth of who you are. In Jesus' name, Amen. Again, there's as many things as there are people. For me, I'm, I became a Christian when I was 12. I've been a Christian for two-thirds of my life. So my distortion is Sunday school Jesus, absolutely. It's like a pet rock. I can put him in my pocket, carry him around with me. He's predictable. He's safe. I already know what he's going to say. I already know what he's going to do. It's not fresh. There's no, there's no life. It's not lively. He doesn't surprise me. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah is what he says. He's untamed. He's holy in terms of being other than us. He's not predictable. He created everything that I can see, and I feel like I can gift wrap him and carry him around with me. That's, that's the distortion for me. And I have to constantly bring that before the Lord and say, help me. When I read the Bible, I already know what the next chapter is going to say, not because I'm really smart, because I've read it before. And so I've got to say, show me, speak, show me something here. Open my eyes up. He's infinite, and for me to somehow think I've got him completely figured out is massively arrogant. But that's, that's the ditch for me. That's the distortion for me. That might not resonate with you. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He says he'll never leave us or forsake us, but for some of you, it is that CEO picture. He's distant. He's not moved by your suffering. He's definitely not moved by your prayers. He's waiting on the year-end report, and he's going to see how you did, and maybe you get fired, maybe you don't. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He expects our commitment. He expects our faithfulness. He expects our loyalty to him. Some of us treat him like he's a buddy, one of many. And we, can, we give him time when we've got time. And we don't respect him. We don't have any honor towards him. We're not in awe of him at all. He's just a guy that we hang around with. We, we're low church here. And there's nothing wrong with that other than it can undercut the sense of majesty and awe. And some of us forget he is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. When he comes back, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. Whether they're for him or not, it's going to be undeniable. This is God and he's come back. And we, we miss that sometimes. We don't live in the reality that, yes, this God who is so near to us, he is God with us, but he is God with us, not my buddy with us. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, you get that here. But some of you, you're working them off. You feel like there's, there's, there's stuff to be done for you to overcome the sin in your life. There's one sin or one pattern of sins that for whatever reason, the blood of Christ does not cover for you. You don't forgive yourself. You don't receive His forgiveness. You're a servant at best, never recognizing what it is to be a son or a daughter. He's a good shepherd. He rejoices when he rescues one of his sheep, which is us. We think we're tolerated on a good day, annoying mostly to him. That he spends most of his time disappointed with what we didn't do and didn't say. That he doesn't take any pleasure in our company. It's, just, it's not true. He delights in us. He desires to be with us. He's affectionate towards us. 
you live in the reality of that? I don't know. Yours might be something completely different. My encouragement to you, we're going to spend some time in communion, or spend some time with communion and in worship. Ask the Lord, show me, where am I missing it? The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. We've already said, if you're a follower of Jesus, he lives within you. Ask him, show me where I'm, my image of you is distorted. Where, what, what am I going after that doesn't conform to reality? And then just as much as you want to see where you're missing it, asking him to, ask him to show you what's true and what's right. For some of you, you're on the outside with Jesus. You're not willing to follow him. I wouldn't follow the Jesus that you don't follow either. You have a, it's a stereotype that you have. It's just not true. It's not who he really is. If that's you today, and you're kind of on the outside, you're cautious in terms of saying, I want to give my life to this guy. Ask him. Show me who you are. He'll do it. He, that, that's the New Testament, showing people who he is. Ask him for that, for more revelation. If you're helping with communion, if you come forward, it's the way we take communion here at Stonebridge. You'll come forward during this song, break off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice and eat it. There's gluten-free bread up here in these uh, bins, these baskets. If you need that, by all means, you can go back to your seat. Or when you're done, we'll have a full set of worship. And during worship, just ask again, ask the Lord to show you where you're missing it and worship him according to who he really is. We'll have ministry teams in the corners. If you want prayer for anything, we'd love to pray with you. If you, all of us, see fuzzy, that's not the issue. The issue is, are we going to hold on to our fuzziness? We're going to ask God for more clarity. If you want to kneel, you can kneel on this front row right here, and we'll leave you alone uh, to pray without us. You guys can stand. I'll pray one more time, and then.